Okay, now, I doubt that there has ever been throughout the centuries a more sort of productive time in the writing of Christian books. Now, you just, you just need to scan any sort of Christian website today, all the sort of big Christian websites, and you see a, a list of all Christian books that are released almost on a sort of daily basis. So you've got Christian books that are written about sin and written about the church. You've got books written about praise. But perhaps most common of all are the almost innumerable books out there just now that are written about uh, famous Christian ministers. Okay, these books are absolutely everywhere. Books, you know, biographies on Calvin, you know, the top ten uh, books about Spurgeon, about John Stott, about all of these guys. Now, why? You know, why are books about Christian ministers uh, so popular? Well, I think maybe part of it is that it's interesting to get a sort of insight into the lives of these guys. You know, these big famous guys throughout history. It's quite interesting to think about their lives and what it was that made them tick. You don't think so? That's maybe part of the attraction. But I think the other part of it, more than that, surely we want to know about these guys' ministries, don't we? You know, that's why these books are so famous. Because we want to know, okay, you know, like take Virgin as an example. You know, this guy who was so, will you allow the word successful? You know, a guy who was so incredibly blessed by God. So, what was it? What was his ministry like? You know, what, what did he focus on? What were his priorities? Well, tonight, what we're going to do is come to something that blows that out of the water. You know, we're going to look tonight at something that is much, much better, much more interesting, much, much greater than some book about some Christian minister somewhere. Because tonight, see those verses we, we read? What we're looking at is an autobiographical section about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Let me say that again. This is what we're looking at tonight. An autobiographical section of scripture written about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And I'll say this whether you believe it or not, what we'll look at tonight is fantastic stuff. It's brilliant stuff. The ministry of Paul. But I guess before we, we look at it, before we think about what Paul says about his ministry, the question we've got to ask, if we're thinking about this properly and wrestling with it, is why on earth does he bother? You see what I mean? Like, in a letter to the, to the church in Colossia, a, a, a letter that is just so urgent, there's such urgency in this letter, why does Paul sort of take time out to write about his own, and sort of to, to describe his own ministry? It seems a bit odd. What was he doing? Why is he writing about his own ministry? Well, to understand it, we've got to think about the context. Now, think about the context, what we've seen in this chapter we've looked at. Colossians 1 shows us that there is this battle going on in Colossae, wasn't there? Now think about a battle, one side of the battle, what have you got here? You've got the false teachers in Colossae, the ones who are saying, we are showing the Colossians the true way. That's on one side of the battle, the battle lines. The other side, what have you got? You've got Epaphras, 
And you've got Paul, the, the guys who have sort of brought the Colossians to Jesus Christ. So there's this ferocious battle that we're seeing emerge in, in Colossae. Now, that's the context. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul pauses in this letter. In the context of this battle, he describes his ministry. Why? To encourage loyalty to him. And to encourage loyalty to the Christ that he preaches. That's what he's doing. That's why he describes his ministry here. So, let's look at it. Let's look at Paul's ministry. So, you know what I'm going to say? Please have your Bibles open. Look at God's word. Let's look at these verses. Let's look what God says to us here. Have your Bibles open, Colossians 1. Now, here's your first heading. You're going to think, I've got this wrong, but this is the first heading. Let's think together here about what we learn about the benefits of suffering. The benefits of suffering. Okay. Last thing we looked at, and Gabriel was preaching last week. Is that right? Yes. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Colossians. The last thing we saw when we're looking at Colossians was in verse 23, Paul speaking about himself. He talked about himself. He says, this is the gospel of which I, Paul, am a servant or have become a servant. Now, the section that we are in tonight, he carries on that focus. He's carrying on talking about himself. And as he begins, and as we begin this section that we're looking at tonight, are we not just confronted by one of the most astounding phrases in all of the Bible. Now look at verse 24. Now get your head around verse 24. The NIV has got, I rejoice in what was suffered. Now the ESV, listen to this. This gets to the heart of what Paul is saying. The ESV has, I rejoice in my suffering. Think about it. I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, I've only been a minister in this congregation for what is just over two years. But I said in a prayer meeting, last prayer meeting I had, that never before in this congregation in those two years have we seen so much suffering uh, in the life of the church in the last two years. Like, it is astounding. You know, when we started last Thursday writing up people to pray for on the board, and it just, we had to stop pretty much. You know, it was just name after name, illness, bereavement. Ever before, I've seen it, not in the life of this congregation. And so perhaps we're looking at what Paul says there, and we're thinking, how can anyone say that? How can anyone possibly genuinely write, I rejoice in my sufferings. You see it? But thankfully, do you know what happens? Paul tells us how he can rejoice in his sufferings. So, let's look at that. First of all, let's try and get our heads around this. He is able to rejoice because he knows that his suffering reduces the sufferings of other Christians. 
he knows that his suffering reduces the suffering of other Christians. Now, we're going to have to wrestle with that. I suppose the first thing we've got to think about is that the sort of the wide perspective that Paul has on his suffering here. Now, now, I want to say, and I hope I'm not wrong here, that Paul demonstrates here a wider view of suffering than the one that we have. Like, we always think suffering, you know, something happens to us, we're suffering, we're going through misery, affliction, we're thinking about ourselves. How do I deal with this? What's the spiritual benefit here? How am I going to cope with this? Not Paul. Wider perspective and suffering. See, look at this. Twice in verse 24, he says that his suffering is not all about him. Now listen to it. He says, I rejoice in what suffered. What's the next bit? For you. You see it? It's not about him. He's thinking about his suffering in how it affects other people. Then he goes on, same verse, my suffering was for the sake of the body, the church. Isn't that amazing? We think about suffering, we think about it ourselves, you know, think about it for our own glory, what's going to happen, there's going to be spiritual good here. He's not thinking like that. He's thinking, he's seeing his affliction as something that he goes through for the benefit of of other people. Okay, now, we've, we've that's fine, but we've got to ask, how does Paul's suffering actually benefit other believers? Do you see? How does Paul's suffering actually benefit other people? And to, to get that, we come to uh, what is a really tough phrase in Scripture. And I think it's one of the toughest phrases that I've had to preach on since I've come here. And I know it's Sunday night, and I know everyone's tired, but we've got to get our heads around this. God has taken us to the point in Scripture now. So look at verse 24. Look what he carries on. He says, so he's talking about his suffering. He says, his sufferings, with this suffering, with my suffering, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. You see how tough that is? I fill up in my flesh what is, look what he's saying, what's still lacking in Christ's affliction. Something lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ. I mean, is he saying, is he saying there's something lacking in the afflictions that Christ suffered on the cross? Is he saying there that there is a deficiency of some sort in the atonement? Something lacking in Christ. Of course he's missing that. You think about what he's just said. In the hymn of, hymn of praise to Jesus Christ, he's just said, Jesus is supreme and sufficient in reconciliation. He's not saying that. He's talking about Christ's present suffering. He's talking about Jesus' suffering now. Now, how does Jesus suffer now? Well, in the last we know that the Messiah would suffer... Because he is united to us. You know, he is our Lord. He is united to us. So Jesus suffers as the head when the body suffers. He suffers as his members suffer, as the church suffers. 
But here's the, the beauty of it. Now, you've got to get this. What Scripture makes clear is that the suffering of Jesus, and what Scripture makes clear is the suffering of the people of God in the last days, it is limited. Limited suffering. We know from um, Acts 17 that there is a time limit on the suffering of the people of God. That Jesus Christ, there's a, there's a day set, uh, Acts 17, there's a day set when Christ is going to return. There is a time limit for our suffering. Not only that, get this, in Mark 13, we know that there is a limit to the amount of tribulation and suffering that the people of God will go through. So I wonder, are you following this? I know it's hard, but do you see Paul's view of affliction? He is seeing, get this, it's amazing. He's seeing that the more he suffers, the less other believers will have to suffer. Think about it, there's a capacity, there's a limit to the amount of suffering the people of God are going to go through before Christ returns. There's a capacity. And he says, the more that I add to this pot of suffering, the less other believers are going to have to suffer. Imagine viewing your affliction. Imagine viewing your suffering like that. It's beautiful. Do you know what? It gets better. It gets better. Because there's something even more positive here. Now, this is what, the centenary of, of World War One, And uh, because of that, you know, you flick the news and you read magazines. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot of stories about what it was like or what it was like to be a soldier in the Great War. Don't we? Just because of the, the, the anniversary of all this sort of stuff. And there's sort of accounts that we read or it's in the news uh, about the friendships that were forged in, you know, the trenches of, I don't know where there was trenches, Ypres, Flanders, maybe the Somme, okay? So, you know, guys in these trenches were really brought, you know, they, they became brothers, you know? Like real sort of camaraderie, real genuine friendship uh, because of what? Because of their shared experience of total misery, in the trenches. They go through that and it brought these people together. Look, I, I, I want you to see it is that there, that sense of coming together in misery that is leading Paul here to say, I am full of joy and I rejoice. He is able to rejoice because he sees his sufferings and all of his ailments and all of his problems. They are bringing him closer to who? His suffering is bringing him closer. Think about the people in the trenches. Bring him closer to Jesus Christ. That's why he mentions Christ's afflictions here. He sees he's united to Jesus. Jesus going through this stuff. I'm going through this stuff. And he sees that because of that, that he has been brought close to Christ in his suffering. Philippians uh, 3, 10. Paul talks about sharing in suffering with Christ. Do you see it? I mean, it's awesome. It's amazing because it is a Christ. We have a we have a self-centered view of suffering, don't we? His, no. His is a thoroughly 
Christ-centered view and understanding of suffering. And I I, want to say, look, we, we are going through a time of misery, maybe as a congregation, or a time where a lot of people are ill. What we've got to do to get through that is we have got to lift our eyes from ourselves and we have got to have a new wide and high view of our suffering. We've got to have a horizontal view of our suffering where we see what we are going through genuinely, concretely benefits the church of God when we suffer. A horizontal view. We've got to have a a vertical view of suffering. We've got to realize that the stuff that we go through, the real anxiety and the real pain, that actually bringing us closer to Christ as Christians. It is actually bringing us closer to Jesus Christ. So the benefits of Christian suffering. The benefits of Christian suffering. Okay. Second heading. Seeing the benefits. Second one, the blessings of the Christian gospel. Okay? The blessings of the Christian gospel. So you're following me so far? We are talking about um, we're talking about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's talking about the ministry of himself. And he's talked about the suffering that is involved in his ministry. Okay, so he sort of moves now into talking about the message, the message of his ministry and what that is. Now, across the world, ministers are known by lots of different terms, aren't they? I don't mean terms of abuse, although I'm sure that is true. And I don't want to know about them. Uh, but different titles. Like some Pentecostal churches might call their ministers apostles. And we can sort of say, mm, no, not apostles. Um, but, you know, we might call our ministers, ministers, or vicars, or pastors, shepherds, leaders, whatever it is, okay? We've got to note what Paul calls himself here in verse 25. It's important for us. The NIV has servant in verse 5. The ESV, again, nails it with the idea of a steward. So Paul calls himself a steward. But a strange word, so what does it mean, this idea of a steward? Well, uh, do you watch Downton Abbey? Do you? Um, I'm sure you've probably seen... Some of the guys are shaking their heads, but I, come on, I don't believe you for a second. I'm sure you're addicts. Um, there's a man called Mr... Or is it Mr. Carson? in Downton Abbey, the sort of head butler guy. Okay. Now, that's the sort of idea that we're talking about when Paul calls himself a steward. Because a steward in the original language was a guy who was in charge of the sort of administration of a grand or sort of affluent estate. So that's sort of Mr. Carson picture, a steward in charge of the administration of a grand, affluent, large estate. Now, if you think about it, that's how Paul regards himself in relation to the gospel. So he sees himself, it's that sort of a picture. He sees himself as a steward, 
So that's how he talks about himself. Look how he talks about the message that he's given. So look at verse 26. It's an odd word in verse 26. He calls this message, he calls his gospel a mystery that is hidden for generations. Now, now what does he mean? Calling the gospel a mystery. Is the gospel, does he say it's just something sort of airy-fairy and something mysterious? Is that what it is? A mystery? No, it's, it's much more the idea he's talking about a revelation from, from God. Now, 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 think about why he's saying that. Think about where Paul sits in redemptive history. Up until Paul has come, the, the gospel, the message of salvation, has had so many details of it hidden, hasn't it? Like all the Old Testament prophets, they knew that salvation would come. They knew it would come by a Messiah. But there's so many different details of it hidden. And then you've, you've got Paul, where Paul arrives, and, and Jesus has come. And not only can, can Paul now see all the details and the wonder and the beauty of salvation, everything come together in Jesus Christ, but think about who Paul was. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the guy who is tasked with bringing this gospel in now all of its splendor to the world. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm a steward who is now to unveil the mysteries, the splendor of the gospel to the Gentile world. That's why he calls it a mystery. Now, at the start of the sermon, I talked about these books that are written about Christian ministers, famous Christian ministers. Um, I want to ask you, have you ever read one of those books? Have you ever read a biography of a famous Christian minister. There was, a, there was a boy yesterday at a conference who gave the biggest plug for a, for a book <laughs> that I've ever heard. Uh, he, he spoke about a biography of George Whitfield. And he said it's a fantastic book. I think Gabriel has read certainly part of the book. Now, in any sort of uh, self-respecting book about a famous minister like that, what they will do is not only talk about the life of that minister and his ministry, they will also devote at least a small part of the book, maybe a chapter or two, to the core of that minister's message. Now, what, you know, what lay at the heart of that guy's message? And that is what we have here with Paul. Now, look at verse 27. Please look at verse 27. We see there the centerpiece of Paul's ministry. He's talking about his ministry, and he says, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. He says, God has chosen to make known, then he says, this mystery, which is, which is what? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, do you see what we've got there? Paul's talking about his ministry. And we are seeing that not only was his understanding of suffering Christ-centered, we that his understanding of his very message was entirely Christ-centered. He saw his message as being 
all about Jesus Christ. That this mystery he's talking about, this revelation, it was all about Jesus. That because of the cross, this Christ that he's talked about, you know, the supreme Christ over creation, Paul says he can live in the hearts of people because of the cross. And then not only that, but think about this, because of their union with Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns, the people of God will share in the, the, the fullness of his eternal reign. Think about what he says. Think about what is the beating heart of his gospel. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, here's the thing. As, as we go through those verses, do you see the joy and the absolute amazement that bounces off the page. You see it? I mean, Paul, Paul is not sort of burdened with this ministry. Paul is reveling in this ministry. I mean, Paul, what does he call it? He calls the gospel here the riches of God. He says, ah, listen to my ministry. I've got the riches of God to tell other people. And he's like that because he sees that Christ is at the center of it all. So friends, I, I want you to think about this tonight. I want you to see that we are immensely privileged as the people of God. And we do not think about that enough. That we, like Paul, we live this side of Calvary. Like we now, not like our forefathers, but we now see God's hands of grace. We see his his salvation, and we see all of its glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that compared to the people who lived before Calvary. Think about how we can see it. We see Christ fulfilling all of these things. How privileged we are. And then we think, wait a minute. We're even more privileged because we, like Paul, are stewards of this message. You know, we too have been given this message and we too have asked to take it to, to the world. And don't we think of it so sinfully as a burden? Don't you think of evangelism sometimes as just a burden? I mean, it's just this thing hanging on us and it's such pressing us down. But look at Paul. I mean, Paul's just loving this. He's saying, wow, what a privilege. I can go and tell people tomorrow that... That this Christ, this creator and sustainer of all things can dwell in their hearts forever. That he can be their hope of glory forever. That they can be saved. And he doesn't see that as a burden. He sees it as a wonderful opportunity. Just the, the most splendid thing. That, in fact, not that. He is the message. Christ is the message. That is at the core of Paul's ministry. So we see the benefits of Christian suffering. And we see that the blessings of the Christian gospel. So we end with this. We end with the building up of the Christian church. The building up of the Christian church. So, so he's talking about his ministry. He's talked about the fact that in his ministry he suffers. And his, and his view of suffering is, is glorious. Then he talks about his message. What is his message in his ministry? And then he ends, 
And he talks about he talks about discipleship in his ministry. And I am delighted that he does that. Because it means that in God's providence, what happens is that we return to a subject that we were only able to deal with fleetingly a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. We're returning to that subject just now. A subject of discipleship. And I know, look, I know I've said this before, and I will say it again in the future, but this idea of discipleship has to be important in the life of LCPC. Just, I think, it's important in all churches, but it has to be even more important for us. Like, the nature of the congregation is that, of course, that sometimes we get people who will come into the congregation for maybe three months, maybe six months, maybe a year. Now, we see that a lot, don't we? And then they come in, and then they will go back to all parts of the world. So we have to engage in quick and effective discipleship. We have to do that. That has to be a real focus of the the life of this congregation. Quick and effective discipleship. So this is great that Paul's talking about this because it's really applicable to, to us. So what is it that Paul says about discipleship? Okay, just a, just a couple of bullet points. He says, first of all, he talks about deep discipleship. Deep discipleship. What does that mean? Well, Paul's ministry is not a ministry like some of these guys who will come into church, give a five-minute superficial view of the gospel, and be on their way again. Okay? That is not what Paul is about. Look at verse 28. This is the main verse here, verse 28. What's his ministry about? It's about building people up. It's about admonishing people. It's about rebuking people. Rebuking people if necessary. It is also about teaching them. That's what he says. Teaching them the truths of scripture. So it's nothing superficial, Paul's ministry. It's something that's deep-rooted, something that's meaningful. It's the first thing. Second thing, and this is important. Paul's ministry was also about universal discipleship. Universal discipleship. Like, I don't um, think the NIV, the church Bible, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the NIV uh, picks this up, but in verse 23 times in the original Paul says, and he talks about discipleship for everyone. For everyone. So he says in the original, we warn everyone. We teach everyone that we may present everyone. Do you see the lesson there? You know, when we're talking about discipleship at London City Presbyterian Church, I think sometimes we think it's for the young people of the church. And that's it. And it is not just for the young people of the church. Discipleship is for all. So we are all, even if we are in this congregation for two months, three months, four months, just a short period of time, we are all to integrate ourselves into the life of this congregation with the hope that we will be built up in the Lord. And let me say to you, if you think you are too old are too wise for discipleship in the congregation. You are neither too old nor too wise. 
And then the third thing, this is where we, where we end. We see it's deep discipleship, we see it's universal discipleship. But we also see, guess what? It is Christ-centered discipleship. See, I certainly mean this in two ways. Paul views discipleship in his ministry as being not just sort of building people up so that they will have more and more knowledge about God or more and more intellectual knowledge and discipleship. He views discipleship in the life of a congregation as building people up so that they will be able to communicate Jesus Christ more effectively. He says in verse 28, him we proclaim, or we proclaim Christ, that that's the sort of focus of the discipleship. Okay, so, it, so that we can more effectively communicate Christ. That's one aspect of it. The, the other aspect is the purpose of discipleship. Like the, the end view, the goal of all discipleship. He says it in verse 28 again. All of this discipleship happens, he says, so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. Now, I'm going to say a phrase here. I'm going to say it twice. So I want you to get it. Okay? This is Paul's view of discipleship. I'll say it twice. For Paul, Christ is the evangelistic purpose of discipleship. And Christ is the eschatological purpose of discipleship. I'll say it again. Just think about it. Christ is the evangelistic purpose of discipleship. And Christ is also the eschatological purpose of discipleship. Do you see it? We are being built up to meet the Lord. We are being built up in the life of the congregation to be ready to meet the Lord when he comes. And that's how it should be in this congregation. Now, what do you think? I'll end with this. What, what do you think? You know, we're talking about Paul's ministry. Paul's writing about his ministry. He's summing it up and talking about suffering and his message. And he talks about Jesus. He talks about... What do you think of Paul's ministry? Like, is it... Do you like his priorities in his ministry? Do you... When you write, when you're reading it and you're, talking, and you're talking about riches and all that, and do you appreciate the passion that he has in his ministry? Do you like his ministry? Let me leave you with this thought. One day, you, as a Christian, are going to have to write your autobiography of your Christian ministry. Isn't that a thought? One day, you are going to be called to give an account of how you have lived and how you have served the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, you are going to have to write your autobiography of Christian service. How's that going to sound? You're going to be able to say, like Paul, that you toiled for Jesus. You're going to be able to say that. Are you going to be able to demonstrate, like Paul does, an absolute zeal and, and passion for Jesus Christ? Are you going to be able to say that? Are you going to be able to do these things? I, 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 I. I hope that we are. I hope that, that Christ tonight is, is your everything. 
You know, I, I hope Christ, is, as you consider him this evening, I hope that Christ is your Lord and your God. I, I hope, as you read this, and I hope that you see that, that Christ must be your strength for suffering. I hope you see that, 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 that Christ is your present, but he's also, certainly for Paul, he is your, your future. I hope you see that Christ is your purpose. That he is your, your hope. Because what we see tonight is that Christ was absolutely everything to the Apostle Paul, wasn't he? May he be everything to us as a congregation until such a time as you and me, we are called up to the clouds to meet with our Savior face to face. Let's pray.